Hey, Greg, can we get some more light? Top one? These old eyes won't make... Hey, there we go. That's so much better. Let me ask you a question tonight as we begin. How many of you have ever heard of the Peter Principle? This is good. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but the Peter Principle was first introduced by a man by the name of Dr. Lawrence Peter, and he wrote a book by that title, The Peter Principle. And this book describes the pitfalls of bureaucratic organization. And the original principle in that book, let me read it to you so I don't get it wrong. He wrote that in a hierarchically structured administration, people tend to be promoted up to their level of incompetence. <laughs> Amen, that's right. <laughs> Basically, what the principle says, it's based on observation and and what the principle says is that as, some, as a worker demonstrates competence at one level, they get promoted to another level, and then they work at that level, and as they demonstrate competence at that level, they get promoted again. And this just continues with promotions for people, and they continue to climb the hierarchical ladder until they get one too many promotions. And they end up in a position that they really have no ability to fulfill. And hierarchical organizations being what they are, they have sort of established rules, and one of those rules is that they don't demote people. And so over time, what Dr. Peter observed was that bureaucracies are run by incompetent people who have all been promoted up to the one level beyond their competence, when they would be much happier, much better suited at another position they remain locked in a job that they are neither qualified nor capable of handling. Well, churches are not immune to the Peter Principle. Doctors, lawyers, accountants all have to pass certain examinations demonstrating proficiency, don't they? Before they are authorized to practice their craft. But all too often in the church, the test for leadership is can the applicant fog a mirror? That's sinking in, right? You've been there, haven't you? Do they have a pulse? We'll take them. What a shame. What a shame it is. It, it should not be this way in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and indeed, the Bible has something to say about such things. Last week, we looked at the strenuous qualifications with regard to prospective deacons, and this follows on the heels of earlier studies that we have done with regard to Paul's requirements for elders. Open your Bibles, if you haven't already done so, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look at just one verse tonight. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10. We're going to see that the requirement for qualification demands examination. And in the process, we're going to see three aspects of Paul's statement regarding examination so that we will understand why Foothill Bible Church is in the process of making some significant changes in our own leadership selection process. 
tonight we will unveil to many of you what some of those significant changes are. The three aspects that I want to look at with you tonight is first, there is a biblical mandate to examine. A biblical mandate to examine leadership, potential leadership. Secondly, I want to look with you at the FBC means of examination. How are we going to implement the mandate that we will see in this text? And finally, what is the FBC method of examination? So there is a mandate to examine, there is a Foothill Bible Church means to do so, and there is a Foothill Bible Church method of doing so, if I can say it that way. These are the three aspects that I want to look at with you tonight. So first, the mandate. Let's just pick it up in verse 8 and get a running start at the context here. Deacons, Paul says, well, in fact, let's go way back to verse 1. We'll get a good long start at this. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, and free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. Look at verse 10 with me again. This is the mandate to examine it, and it falls pretty much in the middle of this whole passage. And let these also, in the Greek, kai atu day. There, the, that short expression, these group of connecting particles, if you will, I believe are key to the proper understanding of this biblical mandate to examine. And let these also. These who? Who is the, is the antecedent of the word thee? Who is Paul referring to? And let these. He's referring back to verse 8, to deacons. And let these, parentheses, deacons also first be tested. Also. That means in addition to, or, or in the same way as. Also along with whom? Also along with elders, I would submit to you that really what this mandate occurring here in the text in verse 10 is talking about is a mandate to examine not just deacons, but elders too. In fact, I think you could translate the verse, and let these deacons also, like the elders, first be tested. 
Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. You see that? I believe that Paul is making a critical statement here that needs to be taken to heart by all who would raise and, and, and um, put forward leadership in the church of God. Notice here in verse 10, he says, let these also first be tested. Be tested. He's using here a, a passive imperative form of a verb, dokimazo. And the, and the verb dokimazo is an interesting verb. It's, it's translated to test. It means to test. It can also mean to examine or to prove or to discover or to demonstrate. It has all of those flavors associated with it. And Paul uses an imperative verb here because he's saying that it is necessary that this be done. This is not an optional part of the leadership process or the, or the process of acknowledging and recognizing leadership in the church. This is a requirement. This is an imperative. This is a command that the church must test its leadership, must test its leadership. Now, the word dakimanzo is used in secular Greek in a very interesting way, and I think it helps enlighten us a little bit more. In secular Greek, it was used in relation to testing a person's credentials for public office. That's what the word referred to in secular Greek, the idea of, of seeing whether somebody was fit to hold public office. It's used in the Bible in a number of passages. Let me just give some of them to you to, to get a feel for this word. It's used over in Luke chapter 14 and verse 19 to speak of testing oxen. Testing oxen. Over in Romans chapter 2 and verse 18, it speaks of recognizing that which is essential. The idea that you can see that which is essential. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 13, it's used there to test the quality of a man's work. 1 Corinthians 11.28, spoken there in the communion context, and it says that we're to examine our own hearts. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, says we're to examine our own belief, and or our own beliefs, rather, and compare it with our conduct. We're to, to see whether we, what we profess and what we do match up with each other. So all through this word dokimazo is this idea of examination, of testing, of discovering, of proving, of demonstrating that whatever it is that is being tested is, is fit, is genuine, is real. So let these deacons, in the same way the elders, first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. If they pass the test, then they go on to become deacons. They are then qualified to, to carry out the, the office of a deacon, to begin to serve the congregation. It, it's a classic if-then statement. If they are this, then they can do this. It's a gateway that has to be passed through. The requirement is not optional. We see that in the imperative form of the verb. We also see it in the first-then statement. Do you see that in verse 10? Let these also first be tested, then let them serve. So this is not an option for the church. This is a mandate. This is a requirement. This is a demand. If there are qualifications for the office of leadership of the church, 
be it overseer or deacon, then there demands some sort of examination or evaluation against those criteria. I mean, just think about it sort of logically. It doesn't make any sense to have a list of requirements and then put it aside and ignore it, does it? I mean, Paul has given given them to the church, first at Ephesus and then to the greater church, the church worldwide and universal for a purpose. The purpose is that we might apply them. We might apply them. Now, it's interesting to note here that Paul does not spell out for us the exact means of the testing, does he? Look at the verse again. Let these also first be tested. He doesn't tell us how, though. He doesn't tell us how to go about testing. He gives us a list of qualifications, but he does not tell us what is the means to test against those qualifications. Oh, he gives us a little help in terms of a man's home life, doesn't he? He says, look at his children. That's a a good way to begin to test him. But he doesn't give us a specific list of questions that you need to ask somebody. In fact, the New Testament, you know, speaks very little about process and procedures. If you think about that, there is very little in the New Testament that is specific with regard to process or procedure in terms of conducting business in the church. I mean, this is, this is illustrated, for example, in, the, in baptism. There's a command to baptize, and inherent in the word, baptizo is the idea of to plunge or to immerse or to to drown, to to stick under the water, but there's not much more than that. There are a whole lot of practical questions that arise under the topic of baptism that just are not addressed. There are wisdom issues. The same thing with regard to communion, right? When we take communion, it says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. It doesn't tell you what kind of crackers to use. It doesn't tell you whether you use grape juice or whether you use wine. It doesn't tell you whether you take it on the first day of the month or whether you take it every time you come together or you take it once a quarter or you do it in the morning or you do it at night. Do you break the crackers the day before or do you do it all at that time? Or what about passing around a loaf of bread? I mean, all of those questions are out there and many more. And the New Testament doesn't say anything about it. Because the New Testament doesn't really care much about process It doesn't care about procedure. It leaves the exact procedures to the discretion of the church. That is a very important thing to remember. There is no New Testament book that is the equivalent of the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is the Old Testament detailed rules and regulations of the Mosaic system, isn't it? It's a a very detailed book. It tells you exactly how to go about conducting sacrifices in minute detail. Sometimes, you know, just to be real candid about it, sometimes in detail it's pretty boring. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, we read through the Bible together in our family every year, and we slug it out through some of those books, and particularly Leviticus. It's a difficult book because I'm not a Jew living 2,000 years ago, and a lot of this stuff, it's really hard to apply. There is no New Testament book like Leviticus. There's freedom in the New Testament. Why? Because the Old Testament is a come and see religion. The New Testament is a go and tell religion, if I can make that distinction. And therefore, Christianity has to be able to move cross-culturally and be transportable and transplantable in all kinds of cultures all around the world, all different kinds of people groups. So there are some specifics, but there are not a lot of detail. And that's very important when we get to the issue of the biblical mandate to examine. Churches have freedom 
in constructing their own examinations. And so what we're going to share with you a little bit later this evening is the way that we are going to do it around here, at least for now, until we find a better way to do it. We tend to worry too much about procedure, too much about mechanism, and too little about qualifications. Generally speaking, the church is more concerned about process than it is about the qualifications of the individuals it chooses. I've been a believer now for 25 years, been part of a number of different churches through my spiritual pilgrimage, and I've witnessed some amazing church business meetings where there's an incredible amount of ungodliness that goes on as people fuss and fight with each other about process. Seldom have I ever heard any kind of passionate discussion of qualifications. But God cares about qualification. He cares very little about process. That may be a revelation to some. Notice also, Paul does not specify who is to carry out the test. It doesn't say that in the text. Look again. And let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Now, I'm going to use some, some biblical logic, if I can, and try to argue with you and, for, and, and convince you, if, if need be, that the general group that should oversee this process is the elders. I think inherent in the name overseer, verse 1, do you see that? Episcopos, the overseer, I think inherent in its very name is the concept of oversight of the fellowship. And therefore, in the selection process of leadership, the elders need to give oversight. Oversight. Look with me, I'll turn over to chapter 5 and verse 17. Paul's speaking there and he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. There is inherent, you can turn back, there is inherent in the office of elder, in the office of overseer, a leadership, a responsibility, a, a management requirement that goes and flows from and with that office. Furthermore, and this just gives you sort of a heads up on what's next week's going to show. I'm going to argue next week that Acts chapter 6, the selection of the seven, is included by Luke for a multitude of reasons, but one of which is that it establishes a prototypical process of selecting deacons. And you'll, I'm going to argue, I'm giving it to you right up front here, I'm going to argue next week that the apostles in that context stand in for elders and that the seven stand in for deacons. And so the process that we see in, in Acts 6, I believe, is a prototypical process of the selection of deacons and leadership, generally speaking, in the church. Now, we haven't been left in a complete vacuum here. It's not like there's no direction at all. I'm not arguing for that. I mean, there's not specific questions given on an exam. There's not a specific procedure spelled out, but there, but there is indeed a, a basis to examine. And the basis to examine is the code that is given to us. I, we've just read it together a few minutes ago, right here in verses 1 through 12. 
So there is a basis under which we would examine. It's also important, although elders have an oversight capacity in this whole process, it's also important to remember that although this letter was written to Timothy, it was designed to be read to the whole congregation at Ephesus. Furthermore, these letters were circulated throughout the ancient world from one church to another. We know that to be true because there are thousands of copies of these letters that are available in one form or another. So the, this code that makes up the basis of the examination would have been widely circulated throughout the church. That's an important thing to note. And the reason it's important to note is because it implies congregational involvement in the process. Paul has given Timothy, not just Timothy, the, the requirements. He has given the requirements to all of us. Every single one of you tonight have now heard the requirements of leadership. And so you have become part of the process. You have become accountable to the truth that is laid out here. All members of the New Testament church must be, indeed are, are required to be, conversant in the qualifications of the leadership of the New Testament church. And with this requirement to be knowledgeable comes an obligation to see that the leadership of the New Testament church matches the qualifications that are laid out here. And so what is the process? We're going to continue to talk about this, but, but whatever it is, it is overseen by the overseers and it has an active congregational aspect to it. So it is a both-and process. I do not believe that a self-perpetuating eldership without any congregational input or involvement is biblical. I think, it, I think it falls short of what the apostle would want for us. I think it also, practically speaking, runs some incredible dangers of being ingrown. And so there is a, there's a congregational part and there is an elder part. But conversely, a leadership selection process that is something as simple as a popular vote is not biblical either. There needs to be some decorum involved in that. There needs to be a serious assessment of a man's character and his capacity to fill the God-given role. And that can only be assessed at a small level. I mean, can you imagine trying to examine somebody, have 400 people sit in on an examination, and each person ask their own pet question? I mean, it would be bedlam, it would be chaos, and at the end of the evening, you wouldn't know anything about this person. So the process needs to be directed, it needs to be managed, it needs to be conducted according to the, to the code that has been given us here. But it also needs to include this congregational involvement that they hold their leaders accountable to fulfilling what the apostle has laid out. All right. What should be examined then? What is it that we should be asking leadership candidates? What kinds of questions should be asked? Well, the first area that they ought to be examined under is called uh, what I would call doctrinal belief. Where are they theologically? I mean, if they are going to be leaders in the church, in fact, look at verse 2, requirement for overseers or elders is they have to be able to do what? Teach. That implies that they have something to teach. And so they need to be assessed in their doctrinal competence. Look also down 
to verse 9, the requirement of deacons. We looked at this last week. Deacons have to hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. That implies that they understand what the mystery of the faith is. So, basic doctrinal beliefs have to be examined. For example, we need to ask leadership candidates, what do you believe about the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture? What do you think about Scripture? Is it just a nice book? Or is it something more? And they need to be pushed and probed and prodded a little in these areas, not just let them spit out an answer. That answer has to be evaluated and, and tested a little bit. We don't want somebody who just parrots back some words. We want to know what they really think. Can you explain the doctrine of the Trinity? If you don't understand, well, let me back off. If you can't, <laughs> if you can't put together what the Scripture has to say about our triune God, then you don't have the right God. Our God is a trinity. We need to understand that, at least as much of it as he's revealed to us, which is not a lot. <laughs> we need to ask what a person believes about the person and the work of Christ. What do they know about the Savior? Who is he? What does he do and how does he do it? Who is the Holy Spirit? What is his role? What is man's problem? See, man only has one problem. There's a lot of symptoms, but there's only one problem. What is man's problem, and how can man be made right with God? Basic stuff. Who is the church? What is its mission? What do you believe about last things? These are all areas and more that a man's doctrinal convictions and understanding need to be probed before we will put him in a position of leadership over the flock of God. Second, his knowledge of the Scriptures and his ability to apply them to a particular situation has to be examined. Again, verse 2, chapter 3, an elder must be able to teach. Titus chapter 1, verse 9, an elder must be holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. He has to understand the scriptures well enough that he can teach the truth and that he can refute those that teach error. For example, what does the Bible teach about divorce and remarriage? Very practical question that comes up all the time. What is the gospel? That's an important question. You didn't think we used to have to ask that question, but today we have to ask that question because there's all kinds of variations out there. What is the gospel? What does the Bible say about male and female roles? How can a believer overcome a particular sin in their life? These are just basic questions that require a man to be able to open his Bible and take somebody to the right place and show them from the Word of God how to gain victory in their life, or, or answer a particular question or issue they're struggling with. In order to be able to counsel somebody, you need to counsel them from the Word of God, which means you need to know the Word of God. We need to examine a man with regard to his personal giftedness. Just exactly what are his spiritual gifts? What are his ministry interests? 
We need, to, we need to probe him with regard to family unity. Is his wife on board with this endeavor? What about his moral integrity? Practical question. What about his time commitments? Can he really fulfill the role? And there are many more questions, and we'll get to some of those later. So there, there has to be an examination process. This examination needs to be conducted in a smaller setting to be effective. Let me read you a quote here by Alexander Strzok, who wrote two books, very, very good books, one called Biblical Eldership and the other one called Ministers of Mercy, the role of a biblical role of deacons, I believe. He writes in his book on biblical eldership, the proper examination of deacons and elders is precisely where many churches fail. The examination process takes time and effort, and many churches are too busy with other matters to make that effort. Very, very important. The selection of leadership in many churches is an afterthought. It's a, oh no, we're up on the annual meeting. We need to have some, some warm bodies here. Who do you know? Plug the holes. Some churches, even foolishly in their constitutions, require certain numbers of elders and deacons. And you're really in for a good time. Constitution says you have to have 12, but there are only 10 qualified men. Now what do we do? It has to be examination process. Serious stuff. Very serious stuff. But the question that arises, I think, out of this text is, why would Paul include this injunction in verse 10 here? Look again. Why did he stick it in right in the middle here? Let me suggest to you perhaps two possibilities for that. Maybe one possibility is because that the role of a deacon could be easily undervalued in the congregation. It's easy to to pour your time and energy into elders and sort of overlook deacons as an afterthought. And so perhaps in order for that not to happen, Paul waits and inserts this requirement for examination and puts it into the middle of his discussion of deacons. That's a possibility. Another possibility that's sort of related to it, and I kind of like this, is it's style. It's just Style. Remember, there were no chapter divisions. There were no verse breaks. This was a letter to be read publicly. People did not have the Word of God like you do sitting on their laps to look down. They listened as it was read. And so there was a, a flow to this text. So rather than repeat the same command twice, once up in verses 1 through 7, when he finishes the requirements of elders saying, by the way, elders must be examined, and then he goes on, and then he starts deacons, and he gives their qualifications, and he says, then deacons must be examined. He just, in the flow, the style of his writing, he just inserts it there. But he has grammatically shown us, back in verse 10, that let these also, he has given us the grammatical clues, and if you were listening, you would not miss them. Also, referring, the process of examination is for deacons and also for elders. So it, it fits together stylistically. If you don't like that, we go over to chapter 5, and there Paul does speak about the public examination of elders. Really, 
He says in verse 22 and following, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. By the way, the context, verse 17, is elders. And verse 23 is a parenthesis, so just leave that out for a minute. The sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. What the apostle saying here is, take some time and evaluate the character of the men. Don't put somebody into eldership quickly. Now, he tells us over in chapter 3 that not to be a novice, right? Not somebody who is new in the faith, but he tells us over here in chapter 5 that it's not just a novice factor. There's a factor of somebody new to the congregation who maybe appears on the outside to have all the package together, all the qualifications. But take some time to get to know them, he says, because you don't know. You don't know. It's, it's possible that there is, a, there is a string of baggage that they're dragging along behind them, and you need to wait long enough to know that. Again, he doesn't tell us how long to wait, does he? Doesn't say one month, two months, three years, ten years. He just says, wait. It's a wisdom issue. In order to properly evaluate leadership, it takes time. Go back to chapter 3. Most churches have two separate standards for the appointment of elders. This is, a, this is a reality in the Western church, I think to our own shame. There is a professional class of elders that receives a very thorough, normally a very thorough and very intensive examination, right? Before a new pastor is called, isn't there usually representatives of the church that meet with that man and, and they examine him from stem to stern in all of these areas? But the so-called lay class of elders typically in a church receives little or no evaluation. And in the process, beloved, what we do is we set up a dual standard and we set up a hierarchy. We have the professionals with all the qualifications and theoretically all the knowledge, and then we have the so-called lay class that tend to end up being just their assistants. But as we labored away here in prior weeks with regard to the plurality of elders, the Bible knows nothing of such a dichotomy. The Bible knows nothing of a professional class of elders. There are elders. Some elders work at a, at a secular employment, if I can say it that way, and they minister in their other time within the church. They earn their bread on the outside and they minister in the church. Other elders, because of the financial generosity of the church have been freed from ministry and they now earn their bread from within the church, allowing them to give more of themselves, more of their time to the process of ministry. But they are both elders, both required to meet the same require or, or standards. Very, very important. All elders need to be fully qualified. All deacons need to be fully qualified. And they need to be formally examined. They also need to be trained, don't they? We need to help men grow into eldership, into deaconship, if there is such a thing. In fact, Paul says, look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. Paul writes, "...in the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also." 
There is a discipleship process that goes on within the local church to help train and raise up leadership within the local church. A fully functioning New Testament church should be able to raise its own leadership from within. They should not have to go to the outside to bring in the professional. They should be able to do it themselves. The only way they're going to be able to do it themselves is that they give themselves wholeheartedly to the task. The task of training up faithful men who will be able to teach other faithful men, and the process will continue to multiply itself. And, and once it gets going and sufficient time and energy and resources are devoted to it, there'll be a crop of leadership always growing. If I could use a sports analogy, you'll have a farm team in which there will constantly be people coming up. Most churches get into trouble, by the way, when they bring people in from the outside. They come in from the outside. That's when they come in with their own package, their own set of ideas, their own way they're going to change the church to suit them. When you grow your leadership from within, then your whole philosophy of ministry is woven right into the fabric of the man. And so when he comes up among the ranks, he's just another man on the oars pulling in the same direction. Very important. Very important. We started FIT. We're going to have our third annual banquet here next month. And, and by the way, let me just commercial. Here it is. This banquet is for everybody. It's on a Saturday. There were, I guess for some people, they were confused about that. August 16th is a Saturday afternoon, and, and it is open to everybody. We want you to come. 3 o'clock, Saturday afternoon. We're going to have a southern barbecue, right, Greg? Amen. Amen. <laughs> and we're going to have racks of ribs, like brontosaurus ribs. I mean, it's going to be good. So you need to come. It's free. What more could you want? So come. But we started FIT with a purpose. The purpose we started FIT was not because I had nothing to do. <laughs> we started FIT because it is a means for the training of the next generation of leaders within the church. Not just men, but women too. FIT is open. Foothill Institute for Theological Training has its purpose to train and raise up leadership within the church of God. First for this church, and then because there are many other churches out there that do not have the resources that God has entrusted to us, we make it available to them too. But we are, we are about the process of training leadership. And when, when leaders are, are rising up within the congregation, when God is doing something, look at verse 1, chapter 3 says it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, what? It is a fine work he desires to do. If a man is aspiring to give leadership in the church of God, he will give leadership. He doesn't need to wait until he gets a title to begin to minister. He will be ministering in the congregation. He will be shepherding in the congregation. He will be teaching in the congregation. He will be serving and ministering within the congregation. And people will recognize him. And then they will put him forward and say, here's one. We got a real one here. How do you know? Well, because he's doing it. I mean, it's kind of crazy, but you think about, example, foreign missions. If you're going to send somebody over to the mission field to, to win the lost, the first question you need to ask that person is, how many people have you led to Christ here? Because if they haven't led people to Christ here, if they're not discipling people here, putting them on an airplane and sending them over there doesn't do anything magical. People need to be doing it. And then when they're doing it, you recognize them for it. So there needs to be a process of evaluation, a process of examination, a process of approving a candidate that is smooth, 
that is quick enough that we don't frustrate people, but slow enough that we don't foolishly elevate somebody according to the Peter principle. The key to reproducing leadership is you have to plan for it. It will not just happen. It has to be planned for. And beloved, most churches do not plan for it. They are so busy keeping the plates spinning with their current programming that they do not have time, energy, or resources to invest in the raising up of leadership in the next generation. And therefore, the churches in America are incredibly weak. Incredibly weak. Listen to a quote here by a man named Bruce Stabbert. He says, We might imagine Peter being informed upon his first encounter with Christ that within three years he would be an apostle and preach to thousands of people at one time. He would probably have said, Who, me? How did Jesus prepare Peter and the other apostles for church leadership? He discipled them. He spent time with them. He taught them. He prayed with them, and he prayed for them. I mean, think about this. Those early apostles were fishermen. They didn't know anything about preaching. They didn't know anything about church planting. They didn't know anything about leading a congregation. They estimated the church at Jerusalem within the first five years was in the multiplied thousands, maybe as much as 20,000. Me, a fisherman? But Christ selected them, didn't he? And he spent time with them, and he poured himself into them. And then he left them. And the church took off. The church took off. He was intentional about what he did. Jesus was incredibly intentional in his leadership development, and there's much we could learn. Matthew 4, verse 19, records Jesus saying this to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men. I hope I've convinced you tonight, just by taking you to this text, that there is indeed a biblical mandate to examine potential leadership. So how are we going to apply it right here at Foothill Bible Church? What is the means and the mechanism that we're going to try to apply this text here? Well, let me answer your question. We have been working for a year now to try to develop a leadership training program that will enable us to discern those within this fellowship who have leadership interests and potential and to get them their proper training so that they can be, their giftedness can show and they can begin to minister in the congregation and, and it'll become apparent and obvious to everybody that these are leaders. So we have put together a training program. It's a one-year training program. We have one for elders and one for deacons. We're going, to, we're going to implement this program beginning in September. Beginning in September. Entry into this program requires a written questionnaire. This written questionnaire has 23 questions. If I remember right, yes, 23 questions on it. With just a, a, a small tweak, it's almost identical for deacons and elders because the characteristics, the qualifications are what? Almost identical, aren't they? They're character-based. This questionnaire, we required Greg McConnell to fill out. 
This questionnaire we required Vincent Nicotra to fill out. This questionnaire they required me to fill out. This questionnaire we're going to require all new elder candidates to fill out. And how they apply to your own life. How do you see yourself against these qualifications, basically, the question. Secondly, describe your relationship with God and your time with him in the word and in prayer. Are you a man of the word? Three, are you characterized by compassion, humility, and a teachable spirit? Explain. How do you handle conflict and correction from a peer, from a superior, from a subordinate? Give us some examples. Are you a team player, and can you function in an environment in which decisions do not go your way? How do you handle disappointment? What are your spiritual gifts? Are you currently respected within the congregation? Are you above reproach in male-female relationships? How do you guard the purity of your mind? Are you a spiritual leader in your home? Describe what your leadership looks like. Are your children under control with all dignity? Have they expressed faith in Christ? Do you exasperate them? How would they answer if we asked them? <laughs> and we might. Are you and your wife characterized by hospitality? Give us some examples. What is your position with regard to divorce and remarriage? Are either you or your wife previously divorced? If so, please explain. Are your finances balanced and under control? Do you give regularly and generously to the Lord's work? What are some of the books that you have recently read? That's one of my favorite questions. Shows so much about a guy's life when you ask him, what are you reading? Oh, Sports Illustrated. <laughs> Describe your experiences teaching from the Bible. Do you have the time to enter into this training program? It's estimating it will take you eight hours a week. What changes will you make in your present schedule to accommodate the training program? Meaning, what are you going to drop so you can add this? Are you and your wife in agreement with you entering into the training program? Please explain. Can you keep matters confidential? Explain. Are you in full agreement with the FBC doctrinal statement? Can you explain it and defend it? If not, please explain. Are you in full support of the ministry of FBC? If not, what are your areas of concern? If at the end of the training program you were not appointed to be an elder, what would your response be? Best to get that in writing up front. Is there anything you haven't shared with us that you would like to share with us? And last, please list three references who are not related to you, one of which is your supervisor at work. And we will call them. We will call them. And there's a place for them to sign it. This is just an attempt to begin to try to examine a man against the code. So the first thing we are asking all new deacon and elder candidates is that they fill out a questionnaire and they turn it in. We're also giving them a written ministry description that tells them what's involved in the process of being an elder or a deacon. Just exactly what is it that you need to do? How many times have you been recruited in the church for something with a sort of a vague description of what your job is? Basically, can you fog a mirror? That's what they want to know. And they say, you know, will you do such and such? And they, they want an answer. And they don't tell you what it is, really. They don't tell you how much time it takes. 
And frequently what happens is people burn out and drop out. Then we get frustrated. They don't show up. People get frustrated with them. They've made a foolish commitment. So there's a written ministry description. And then finally, as I said, there is a one-year training program. A one-year training program in which elder candidates and deacon candidates will be mentored through the process. When they enter into the program, they are assigned a mentor. An elder who is already mature in some of these things and, is, and can walk them through the process. As part of that mentoring process, they will meet at least quarterly with their, with their candidate or their mentor and they'll review their own prog progress and answer any questions that need to be answered. The mentor will provide a written evaluation twice during the year-long process, once in the fall and once in the spring. The candidate must observe, attend and observe at least three elder meetings and keep their lips closed the whole time. Just listen. They have to have ministry experience. Elder candidates have to observe at least two discipleship counseling sessions along with their mentor. They have to teach. It says in the scriptures they have to be apt to teach. It doesn't mean that every single elder is a gifted teacher, but it means every single elder has to be able to handle the word in a teaching context. And so there will be teaching requirements. Six times they'll have to teach. And we're going to rotate them through the fellowship groups, the adult fellowship groups. There are three of them, six times, two times in each group, and they will be evaluated on their teaching. A couple of weeks ago, I started a seven-week preaching class on Wednesday nights. We have 15 guys that are coming out. It just staggered me that there were 15 guys in this congregation who wanted to come out here and preach and be critiqued about it. But they showed up, and, and we've got a, an evaluation form. We're going to use that same evaluation form to, to critique the teaching ministry of these candidates. There are certain academic requirements, books that have to be read, fit classes that will have to be attended to fill in gaps or holes in their theology. All designed to build them up, prepare them, make them ready for the task. Deacons have similar training program. They also submit a questionnaire. They're also interviewed and references checked. And then they're enrolled into the program. All last year, I met with the deacon board on Sunday mornings during the, the Sunday school hour, and we went through deacon training material. We're going to go through it all over again, starting in September, with deacon candidates. We will give them, I will give them some written evaluations and feedback on how they're doing. They need to, to attend and observe deacon meetings. They need to complete six field assignments and report back to the group, and they will be evaluated. We are going to help them grow in their process. Their time commitment is less. It's estimated at four hours a week. Since it's not a teaching, shepherding position, the requirements are not as high. The character requirements are as high, but the, the mentoring requirements are not as high. So that's the means by which we're going to examine and we're going to train. What is the method? Well, those of you who have been here for a long time, you know we have a nominating committee. Constitutionally, we have a nominating committee. The elders appoint the nominating committee, and each year, historically, the nominating committee would select out men for the candidates of elders and deacons, and would present them at the con to the congregation at the annual meeting, and they would be affirmed. And at the annual meeting, all the elders would be reaffirmed, and all the deacons would be reaffirmed for another year. We are maintaining the nominating committee. The nominating committee is still in place. In fact, it has already met twice. And what the nominating committee is doing is nominating people into the candidate training programs. 
All we've done is inserted a one-year mandatory training time between the time of nomination and between the time of affirmation. Once a candidate is nominated by the nominating committee, fills out the paperwork, is interviewed, enters into the training program, successfully passes through the training program, at the end of that time, they will come before the congregation and be affirmed in their roles of leadership. And of course, the elders will give oversight to this whole process from start to finish that we will do our part with prayer and diligence to see that the men that have that arrive before the congregation to be affirmed are men that are qualified, men whose hearts desire this kind of ministry. So that's how we are going to try to apply this mandate here. We covet your prayers in this whole process. This is a lot of work. It's a lot more work than the old way of doing it. But in the long run, we believe, and the elders are firmly committed to this, and the deacons are firmly committed to this, we believe that the results will far outweigh the amount of labor and effort that goes into it. Let's pray. Our Father, the Scripture is clear that qualification demands evaluation. And so, Lord God, we are trying to do that. We're trying to take things to the next level of seriousness. We're trying to apply these Scriptures, Lord God, trusting that you are directing us in the process and trying to do it with a humble heart. We do pray, Lord, for your guidance and protection over your church. We are not so brash and bold to think that anything that could be designed by and implemented by men could affect true spiritual change. We recognize our dependence upon your spirit for all things. We pray your blessing upon this fellowship. We pray for the unity of this church, that you would protect, that you would draw us together around a common faith, that you would be pleased to glorify yourself in these people, in us here in this place. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.